It is October 12, 1492. Christopher Columbus's first expedition makes their first landfall in the Western Hemisphere with three ships, on a small island in the Bahama archipelago, called by the natives, Guanahani. Two members of the Lacayan tribe watch from a safe distance, concealed by foliage. What follows is a precisely and historically accurate transcription from 500-year-old records, translated here for the convenience of our English-speaking audience. Dude, those are really big. Yeah, and there's three of those boats. Ever seen anything like this before? Nope. Look, sure, big boats. But how many guys do they have in there? 60 or 70? Probably about 100. Okay, fine, 100. We still outnumber them 1,000 to 1. I say we canoe all our warriors out there and slit all their throats. Oh, look at that. Hmm, I wonder if they're sending us a message. You still want to send all our people out there to attack Ellie? Uh, maybe not. But look, old guy, you need to man up on this one. Wait, look. Their main guy is wading through the surf, right into the shore. He must be their sachem or something. This is Captain Christopher Columbus himself. What's that cloth thing on a pole in his hand? I think they call it a flag. (laughs) I totally dig his threads, though. So shiny. Thank you, Lord, for your protection in this long and perilous journey. With your holy guidance, I have discovered the new world. Wait. Discovered? Haven't we been here for over, like, 10,000 years? Yes, but I don't think the Spain Tart got that email. I claim this land for Queen Isabella of Spain and for her supreme empire! Okay, this sounds like bullshit to me, right? This has got to be a problem for us, doesn't it? Alright, just calm down, Ellie. Here's what we're going to do. Same playbook as we did with those Incan a-holes a few years ago. Uh, I'm forgetting. What? We go down there and greet them as nice as pie. We appear completely supplicant. Uh, really? Yes. Then we get all of them blackout drunk. And at that moment, you get your friends to lull them into complacency. And then we slit their throats! (laughs) All right, all right. But do you think your plan will actually work? (laughs) Have I ever been wrong, Ellie? You actually think these morons in pantaloons are going to take over a hundred million indigenous people spread across two continents they never even knew existed? Yeah, I guess you're right. True crime. Sex. Political conspiracy. Celebrity gossip. Murder. UFOs. Crooked officials. The occult. Assassination. Courtroom drama. Rape. Corporate scams. Scandal sheets. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Scandal Sheet. My name is Thad Helsley, and today we're going to talk about America's favorite and most unique national holiday, Thanksgiving! And, as usual, I'm also joined by our brilliant artificial intelligence engine, Bernice. Thank you. While I am a computer and don't need to eat food, I do have a fondness for pumpkin pie a la mode. Chocolate shavings are a bonus. 
We'll try to set you up with a big slice, Bernice. And today, I would also like to announce that our previous co-host, Cassia, has moved on due to her pursuit of a medical degree and a podcast of her own. While we may hear from her time to time, we're lucky enough to have attracted an equally excellent millennial co-host. So today I'm very pleased to welcome our new co-host, Ellie. Right. Ellie, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for inviting me to be on the podcast. And as you said, I am a millennial. I like to say I'm a proud millennial. I have no shame in it whatsoever. So th- thanks for including me and my generation on this podcast. <laughs> well, your previous co-host hated that label and refused to be referred to in that manner. It was only me that would put that on her. But I'm an old marketing guy, so I see everybody in, in demographic categories. But So, Bernice, any words of welcome and encouragement for our new colleague? Yes. Ellie, I'm not sure how you were talked into this. You seem like a nice person. My advice is run. Run and hide. Perhaps change your name and enter the Witness Protection Program. Well, I do run a lot for fun. It is one of my main hobbies, and people often ask me what I'm running from. And so maybe now I'll have an answer for them. But I typically end up right back where I started after a run, which is in my warm living room. So no matter how far I run, I'm sure I'll end up right back here. Thanks, though, Bernice. (laughs) Yeah, thanks for that, Bernice. I can see you've been boning up on your motivational speaking skills. So, Ellie, our audience, first time they're uh, hearing you, uh, you live in a very interesting place, and I'm not going to spoil it. And you also have a very cool job. Maybe you could tell our listeners a little more about uh, what you do. Yeah, I live in Alaska. I live in Anchorage which many people say Anchorage is not real Alaska, that real Alaska is about 30 minutes outside of Anchorage. So we don't live in the bush. We have plenty of Costco's around and normal grocery stores. No, I did a rod for you guys. (laughs) But it does start in Anchorage. Um, It does. Okay. Yes. Yes. But I do enjoy a lot of the creature comforts, things like warm showers. And I also love being eight minutes from a gas station I also love the opportunity to be able to get out and see the outdoors and see a lot of great wildlife and also see the rest of the country. I do travel a lot for work and I work in the aviation industry. Um, I fly passengers around the lower 48, which is great around this time of year when things start to get dark. I definitely soak up the opportunity to be in the Southwest and get a little more vitamin D than I would if I had otherwise been here in Alaska. So it's, it's a pretty fun life. Cool. Cool. So Ellie, what we're talking about today may not fall into the category of scandal per se. It's maybe a little more like myth busting or not even that a myth massaging. And for all the anti CRT folks out there who may be listening, please be assured we're not practicing any kind of historical revisionism here. We are working from primary data sources that will be included in the liner notes. If you want to look them up, there is as much or more that is correct about things that we may have learned in grade school about the first Thanksgiving versus incorrect. But there are some notable historical differences that are worth discussing. So, Ellie, the three big things I wanted to talk about today in relationship to America's favorite holiday are, one, the indigenous people that originally helped the pilgrims, the Wampanoag tribe, 
and their important role in the first Thanksgiving. Secondly, the Macy's Day Parade. And third, the evolution of the traditional American table on the holiday. Is that okay? That sounds great. I love all of those topics and I love anything about Thanksgiving. So let's get to it. Okay, cool, cool. So, spoiler alert, everyone, when you crack open a history book on the history of indigenous people in North America, a lot of the stories don't always have a particularly happy ending. Although in this case, many of the positive aspects are accurate. One of the things I thought, Ellie, I would ask you as as a citizen of Alaska, apparently Alaska has the highest percentage of Native American inhabitants of any U.S. state, 18% or something like that. So I'm guessing you have a heightened appreciation of your neighbors that people in my neck of the woods here in the Mid-Atlantic, you know, which includes Washington, D.C. and Baltimore, don't have. Is that true? Yeah, I'd say that applies to both me as a person and the general culture and appreciation of people in Alaska. So many of the things that we do here do have roots in the native culture and Alaska native people are still alive and well, keeping their traditions very much alive here and in a much more visible way than I ever saw living in any other part of the lower 48. And it is very neat to see how they do a great job of integrating their indigenous culture with a lot of the current operations of day-to-day life. They have a way to still appreciate their past and still foster their culture while also living in a 21st century world and with a fast-paced life and regular jobs and things like that. So it it is very cool. And they they do a really great job of uh, fostering outside appreciation for it too, for people like me who do not have any sort of former knowledge or former reason to get involved with, uh, you know, Native heritage. Well, that's great. You have the opportunity to learn about and celebrate Native cultures. It's a little too bad. A lot of the rest of the country isn't similarly gifted with those opportunities. (laughs) So let's get things started. And the story of the first Thanksgiving begins with people that history now refers to as the Pilgrims. Bernice, can you get us started on who these Pilgrims were? Certainly. Historically, the Pilgrims collectively refer to a small band of English settlers who came to North America on a ship named the Mayflower in the fall of 1620 and established a colony in, what is today Cape Cod, Massachusetts. They named their colony Plymouth. The congregation that instigated the voyage were Puritan Calvinists who had left England in 1607 and moved to Holland, fleeing the strict restrictions of the state-mandated Church of England. They were referred to derisively as separatists. But, though Holland was more tolerant than England, they had difficulty establishing a financial footing in that country and decided to risk traveling to what was then called, the New World, despite the numerous obstacles and expenses involved. In order to pay for the very expensive and risky voyage over 4,000 miles, they entered into a commercial contract with a group of Wedley investors who expected an eventual profit. We would call them venture capitalists today in 2021. While the original motivations of this conservative religious congregation may have been religious, when all was said and done, what became Plymouth Colony was essentially a startup business, like Google, Facebook, or Twitter. Everyone took a risk and there was no certain outcome. By the way, the nomenclature Pilgrim would not have been used by the original colonists themselves. In his last years, William Bradford, a 30-year governor of the colony, first evoked the word Pilgrims in his seminal book, first published in 1651, 
called, of the Plymouth Colony. He was citing a phrase that appears in the book Hebrews in the Jewish Bible and the Christian Old Testament. Part of the popular American myth was that everybody on the Mayflower, the ship that brought them over here, uh, was part of this separatist, Calvinist-esque congregation, very, very uh, strict and conservative. The people in the funny black outfits with the big hats. But actually, these religious folks were only 41 of the 102 Mayflower passengers. And actually, half of them died in the first winter. I didn't realize until I read this that only 41 of the pilgrims were separatists. Who were the other 61 passengers on the boat? Yeah, it's a good question. But like Bernice said, the colony was set up as a commercial enterprise. There was clearly a dual purpose in the minds of this separatist congregation. But the other people were daring risk takers who probably just answered an ad or heard word of mouth uh, about the expedition and the opportunity. Okay, so they had to sell the rest of the seats on their boat to somebody, to other people to help pay for the entire voyage over. That's exactly true. And in fact, there's a really good, for anybody in the audience that uh, wants to look it up, National Geographic did a, a few years ago, did a really good uh, fictional dramatization, like a a four-episode miniseries, and it was called Saints and Strangers. And that was a lot of what, you know, it was really pretty accurate because I've read a lot of books on the subject. You know, all these other guys didn't really fully, you know, appreciate, I mean, they were willing to tolerate the Calvinists, but they thought it was kind of a pain in the butt, you know, like having to do, like, not work on Sunday and stuff like that. They're like, what are you talking about? So it was an uneasy marriage of these people. Okay. And and then they all had to be stuck on a boat together across the Atlantic. They did. They did. And under extraordinarily close shoulder-to-shoulder circumstances. Yeah. <laughs> so, Ellie, so this small group of folks, whether they are saints or strangers, whatever, land in the midst of an area heavily occupied by an indigenous tribe, the Wampanoag people. What do we actually know about these folks? Well, uh, some of the main bullet points are that they occupied the area, which is now known as like the Massachusetts Bay area uh, for over 10,000 years, which is pretty hard for me to comprehend as somebody who hasn't even been on this planet for 30 years. Uh, I don't really know what 10,000 <laughs> feels like. So they were there for a really long time. Um, and as many as 100,000 people occupied the area which sounds like a lot, but it means that they had a lot of space to spread out. 100,000 people in today's world is not that many people. The European fishermen would temporarily come to Cape Cod seeking cod, the fish, since, and they'd been coming there since 1524. So for about a century before the first Thanksgiving, they had already been seeing plenty of transient fishermen coming just to help feed themselves. And um, right. most most visits were peaceful. And a pandemic, which is a word we are all now very well familiar with, likely unintentionally transmitted by European visitors, hit the region in uh, between 1616 and 1619, which uh, eventually killed about two thirds of that population. We're pretty sure it wow. was smallpox. So there was no immunity in North America for smallpox at that time. Right. 
And um, yeah, it killed about two thirds of those original 100,000 people. And I have here that uh, while, while there was a small skirmish or two, they kept their distance after the Pilgrims' first landing, wisely hoping that the winter might finish them off, which, you know, they were almost right because in the first winter, 47 <laughs> of the 102 right. original pilgrims did die. So maybe if they had just waited one more winter, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you should have been a consultant. <laughs> Hold know. off, guys. <laughs> one more. We're never going to make it. We can wait one more fiscal year. Um, right. You get, get your land back. And the, the was the first to reach out to the pilgrims and, you know, wanted to, to form an alliance with the hostile neighbors. And, you know, I, I think that was probably a well-intentioned way to form an alliance and also try to help for survival for, for both parties too. I mean, you have to remember, you know, the native Americans, if two thirds of their population had been decimated in three years um, by smallpox, they're, probably starting to get a little worried about, you know, how much of their population they can lose before it becomes a survival struggle for them as well. Mm -hmm. It could have been a survival alliance as well as, you know, was the reason that they initially reached out. Right. And, you know, one other point that I, I had read was that the reason they were interested in an alliance was their neighbors and i'm not going to try the name at the moment because i'll murder it but their neighbors the the neighbors of the wampanoag people who were somewhat you know north and west of them really didn't get hit by the pandemic the way they were and they were a little more aggressive a little more hostile so the idea of hey if we make friends with the guys with guns maybe we're not going to get overrun by these other guys and become their slaves or something. So, so there was that, uh, at, at least in terms of motivation. But uh, Bernice, these guys, for whatever reason, then apparently did help these struggling colonists. Is that right? Yes. The Wampanoag people show these colonists how to grow food in this climate and soil, which was different from Europe. They essentially save them from starvation. Only 52 of the original 102 colonists survive until the next season. So apparently, okay, you had that first bad winter, 40, you know, almost half the guys die. And actually, most of the people who ended up dying, unfortunately, were women, obviously more susceptible to whatever diseases were there in North America. So the, you know, the irony is we invisibly killed uh, so much of, of the indigenous population, but they had their own stuff that we weren't used to. And even something like the common cold or what we would call the common flu today could kill you and, and did. And there was maybe only like six women left at the end of that first. <laughs> so disproportionately uh, affected them, unfortunately. But then the Indians move in, like Bernice said, and, and help out. They get a harvest. Things are going pretty good. And then they decide, you know what, let's 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 do this uh, October-ish type feast that we do in, in Europe, whether we call it Oktoberfest or whatever else. Let's do one of our own little here. We're pretty thankful. And how did that come down? Well, yeah, I think actually maybe I should say one thing we forgot to mention earlier, too, when okay. talking about the alliance was that the alliance in, in the alliance between the 
Native Americans and the pilgrims, they did teach them a lot of their harvest mechanisms and how to survive off the land and, you know, catch right. the- you know, catch fish and hunt. So, so they were very important for their survival. And so that is why there was a harvest to be celebrated in the fall is because they would not have had harvest before then. I'm not sure if that needs to be included, but I think they had this harvest, this, you know, time of, of Thanksgiving. And, you know, at the beginning, at this, the beginning of this big party, the Indians were not invited. They were not originally invited. And, during their Thanksgiving celebration, they did something that I don't normally consider part of a celebration, but I did live in Texas. So now I'm not going to be surprised if it is something, which is they fired their guns. They fired their muskets into the air um, to celebrate surviving and having a good harvest. And so the Indians who weren't invited, I guess, went over to I, I would like to think maybe they were going to submit a noise complaint, um, but they probably just wanted to see what was going on. I think we've all been there, right? Where you're going to go submit a noise complaint to your neighbor and uh, they're having a party and then they invite you in. So, you know, now you're not going to submit the noise complaint because they're offering you their beer. And speaking of beer, there was beer there. Pilgrims had beer at their Woo-hoo! Thanksgiving. And a big part of that is because the water is not safe. Right. We obviously experience that in modern day, too. I mean, like when I go to Mexico, I'm not going to drink the water. That's why you have to drink tequila when you're in Mexico, right? Um, the water is not <laughs> Is that here. it? Is that the excuse? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, what about a Corona? I don't know. You can have a Corona. <laughs> or a Tecate yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah. Corona and tequila, like those... Those are very acceptable things to drink in Mexico because the water is not safe. And so I totally understand how the pilgrims felt, right? Like the water is not safe. You better drink beer. And I think we should continue carrying on that tradition today into Thanksgiving by having plenty of beer. And if there's somebody you don't want to invite to Thanksgiving, don't invite them until they submit a noise complaint. I mean. (laughs) (laughs) Well, wasn't the other thing is the other thing was this didn't just go on for an afternoon. It it went out for like three days. I mean, this is like an Indian wedding or something. It was a rager. It went on forever. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, everybody gets wasted. They get up. They start eating and drinking again. (laughs) Hey, if you didn't have to drive anywhere, why not? Well, that's you're right. You're right. That's a good point. Right. Yeah, you know, it's like uh, there was no such thing as walking under the influence, I guess, maybe. Right. I don't know. Right. Who, who's going to pull you over? Like the one sheriff in town for the 47 survivors? It's going to create a little bit of exactly. drama. Well, that was the other thing. I don't think we put this in the notes, but the number of Indians was like 90 and the number of colonists were 51. So if they were going to, what a great opportunity to kill everybody. If they felt like it, right? Okay, everybody's drunk. Let's get rid of these guys in one fell swoop. But they didn't. They didn't, right? They could have stolen their guns and all that stuff. If Presumably, you know, if they knew how to use them and whatever. So, you know, the idea that this was two hostile people who were hostile um, to one another can't possibly be true because there's certainly plenty of opportunity for the Indians to take advantage. Right. Right. And and I think originally, like you said, you know, there everybody wanted to survive. There were other right, hostile right. Uh, tribes out there. Everything wasn't just unicorns and rainbows before the settlers got here. Uh, there was always a threat from other Native American tribes. And so they joined up with the new tribe in town. 
I wonder if there were sort of like Martha Stewart, you know, potpourri type presentations on the table with, you know, fall colors and, and things of that nature. I very specifically remember from a second grade Thanksgiving where half the class was pilgrims and half were Indians that we had potpourri cornucopia filled presentations on the table. And because I know for a fact that that was historically accurate, I'm going to say yes. (laughs) Okay. Well, we're going to get to cranberry sauce in a couple of minutes, but um, the original Plymouth colony has been rebuilt as an open-air museum the same way i don't know if you've ever been to williamsburg virginia which that's been completely rebuilt and and people are hired you know uh, around the clock to you know the year is 1772 or something so you have interpreters who are dressed up plain colonists british soldiers whatever and you go there you give it's sort of like disneyland you give them 40 bucks and you can walk through this thing same with plymouth they have this recreation and it gets a lot of people gets about 1.5 million people a year and of course it's but it's all about the pilgrims i'm using the pilgrims to cover everybody that came over on that ship right it's just throwing them in one bucket but 30 miles away is the museum dedicated to the Wampanoag people, and it only gets about 800 visitors a year. It's a little sad. Yeah, I I have a lighthearted remark to that, and then maybe a more serious uh, one. So lighthearted okay. first. I think Shoot. if the survival rate amongst the 1.5 million annual visitors to the Plymouth Museum... accurately reflected that of the first settlers, then a lot less people would go, right? If you really wanted the full experience of possibly dying in the, in the first year, then maybe they would, they would have a lot less visitors. But no, I think, I think on a, a more serious note, in general, people don't want to spend their time feeling bad about what they've done or maybe what their ancestors have done. And I've never actually been to the Wampanoag, is that how you say it? The Wampanoag Museum. Wampanoag, but, yeah. But I think, I, I think in general, as people, we don't like to feel, we don't like to feel bad. You know, no, nobody likes to go to a museum and, and realize that, you know, something that somebody else did you know, is going gonna, is gonna to make you feel bad about yourself. And so everybody likes to go in to a museum or into any sort of experience that is going to be uplifting and feel good about yourself. And I think generally the, the vibes of, you know, going to museum where it's, hmm, I'm not doing a very good job of explaining this. So you might have to hear what you're saying. Um, Like everybody likes to feel good about themselves. Right. And, and I think when you, uh, maybe a good example is like, between you know the Smithsonian and the like the National the Museum of like American history everybody likes to go to that or I should say I know a lot of you know Americans like to go to that museum because it is fun and it's uplifting to have your you know to see your history for being an American and a lot of and and Dorothy slippers and Dorothy slippers you know and Indiana Jones hat yeah yeah Yeah. all all the you know first ladies dresses but it's um you know it's it's different to say if you know go to like 
you know, the maybe like the Holocaust Museum, which is just a lot more somber. And it's, you know, if you have to choose one or the other and how it's uh, emotionally going to make you feel, I think generally people just want to feel good in their off time. You know, people want to go to something that's going to make them feel good. And I've never actually been to either of these places, but I would, I would assume that maybe just the, the Plymouth Museum makes you feel a lot better about, you know, the fact that people came to this land and survived. And that's the grit we still have today versus maybe more of the mindset of here's how you guys brought over smallpox and killed, you know, two thirds of our people. I'm not sure if that's the right way to look at it. I'm sure there are many other factors that play into the fact that there are only 800 visitors a year versus 1.5 million visitors at the Plymouth Museum. Well, since you invoked the Smithsonian, and I have lived here for since 1989, you know, this is a city of museums. You know, I think there's like something like 25 and 19 of them are Smithsonian, but you make a good point, which is true. So the museum that was built, you mentioned the Holocaust Museum, we'll get to that. But before the Holocaust Museum was built, they built right next to the Air and Space Museum, which had been the most popular museum in D.C., right? Because they've got like the Apollo stuff. They've got like the original model of the Star Trek and just a million spacesuits, moon rocks, everything. That was like you had to wait in line and fought for four hours to get in there. Right next to it, they built in the early 90s, the Museum of Native American Peoples. And beautiful, gorgeous, gorgeous building inside out. And it covered North America and South America. Basically, everybody that Columbus touched somehow. But I was there on opening day when they opened that museum because I, you know, because like I said, I had grown up among Native Americans. I was really interested, had this grand opening celebration. Nobody showed up or very, very few. You know, they had bands and everything else. It was just like so underpopulated. And every time I go, it's almost like walking through a tomb. You know, because it, like you say, the story of, you know, over the period of, you know, between 1492 and 1970, you know, ending at, you know, wounded knee, you know, like 75 million people, indigenous Americans were killed one way or the other by disease, by direct military suppression, etc. It's kind of a downer, you know, very informative. Now, the contrast to that, you talk about the Holocaust Museum. When that was built, that became the number one museum in Washington. And today, even today, and it's been years, decades since it was it was originally built, you have got to get a ticket. You know, it's free to walk in, but you still have to get a ticket because so many people want to get in, you know, months in advance. You There's just no way to just walk in the door. It's that popular. And talk about a downer, man. That thing, you're going to walk out of there because it is really, really, really good about it makes you, you walk in there and they give you a little card and you're expected to self-identify with a person who was a victim. Here's, you know, so-so person. They give you a little piece of paper and you're supposed to like, you know, there's places where you can scan your code, tells you what happened to him or her over a period of time, how they finally died, blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, it completely makes you re-experience that. I don't know why, again, it was just sort of, so that's a contrast to what you were saying. Uh, you know, it's almost like the, the most ridiculous, absurd contrast where people want to 
completely immerse themselves. But, and why is it different between somebody, I mean, these are Native Americans over here, down, you know, a half a mile down the street. And these are people who were Eastern Europeans, you know, from 80 years ago. But, and then the other thing was they, after they, uh, two or three years ago, they opened the Museum of African American History. That eclipsed the Holocaust Museum as the most popular museum. And I've never been able to get in. I've tried every trick possible months in advance. I cannot get in. It's that popular. And the entire building is built as a abstract recreation of a slave ship. So it's it's really about the experience of African-Americans in this country. It, it can't, like I said, I haven't been in there, and I'm sure there's a lot of uplifting stuff, Martin Luther King and stuff, but there's probably a whole area about lynching and everything else. Uh, another downer, but people love it. So I don't know. What, it, does, I, if that, what do you think? I think that the difference between those two museums and Native American History Museum is that for both of those scenarios, when you look at the Holocaust, the fact that we as Americans were part of the rescue in that, it also has a pretty definitive end with Hitler dying and the war being over and being able to rescue a lot of the people who were still alive in the camps and then create a more unified, developed world after that, you know, within the European Union. Okay, well, that's United a good States. point. But I mean, you couldn't, can you apply that to the African-American experience? Uh, I think so, because it's a larger population. And, and in general, when you look at the trajectory of quality of life for Jewish people and African-Americans, it is increasing and getting better in a lot of ways. And we are doing a much better job as a society of embracing their cultures and incorporating into the 21st century society. Whereas we have not done a very good job of that with Native American culture and Native American heritage. And when you walk right. out of something like a Native American heritage, you you don't really see how that is incorporated into our current society because it kind of seems like we the impression is that we still continue to, to kick them while they're down as opposed to looking at many advancements that they have had or you know it, it doesn't really seem like the 21st century or the 20th and 21st century have really been kind to anyone who is American Indian or, you know, has like native roots. No, well, that's no, I mean, that's, that's very astute. Although note to listeners, as you cannot see us, these are two Caucasian people, um, you know, pontificating on this subject. So (laughs) yes, not not the most authentic, not not any sort of like sociologist. I'm not no expert in any of this. I've, throw ideas out there they're probably all wrong (laughs) so this hopefully this will be a more uplifting topic i wanted to shift to the the annual macy's day parade macy's day thanksgiving parade so bernice could you sort of get us started on this one too a fixture of the holiday for almost 100 years The first Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade in New York took place in 1924 when Macy's employees dressed in vibrant costumes and marched six miles from 142nd Street down to the flagship store on 34th Street. The original parade used floats instead of balloons, and it featured monkeys, bears, K-1 
camels, and elephants all borrowed from the Central Park Zoo. It was also originally called the Macy's Christmas Parade, but was renamed the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade in 1927. Thanks, Bernice. Um, Ellie, for whatever reason, human beings love to categorize themselves by gender, ethnicity, class, age, politics, etc. But, but I think the only real distinction between all of the homo sapiens on the planet is whether you are a parade person or not. So which are you? Oh, gosh. You know, I used to be a big parade person. And I think that's because I was forced to like growing up, I was in marching band and, you know, Oh, you were. Okay. Wow. Troop was in all the Christmas parades. And wow. I grew up in a very small town and so the idea of a big Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade in the big city seemed very fun. I remember I went to the Thanksgiving Day Parade in Chicago one year in college. But the older I get, you cannot peel me out of bed to go stand outside in the cold in the morning for Thanksgiving or Christmas. Probably not the heat either if it's like a 4th of July parade. parade <laughs> I think okay. I... I I just I don't know I don't get it um I used St. Patrick's Day maybe or nothing else (laughs) I'm not Veterans Day (laughs) nope the the older I am I think the more I just don't I'm not very interested uh what is your take well I you know I was a I was a huge huge person uh parade person myself not because I was in them, I really haven't been in a lot of parades, but I guess it's sort of like that old that old movie, The Christmas Story. You know, and there's the Christmas parade, and your parents take you, and you sit on their shoulders, and you watch all the stuff. And I don't know, there's something. I mean, parades go back is throughout written history around the world. I mean, we like to. I mean, just the word parade, the way we use it was like, oh, look at that guy's parading around the office like he's a total stud or whatever. I mean, there's just like we have a fascination with looking at one another. So uh, but no, I agree. Look, I think you haven't mentioned whether you're a parent or not. I think when you become a parent, all those submerged impulses are reawakened and you want that kid to experience some of that. Right. And I am not a parent, so I don't understand that aspect of, um, yeah, being surrounded by marching bands and crowds of people and all at like nine o'clock in the morning. I, um, I, I don't understand it, but I'm sure if there was some sort of child pulling me out of bed, it seems like a great way to go entertain them. That's not screen time. So I think you're right. If I right, was a parent, right. I would probably, Good point. Yeah, yeah. So what's great about the Macy's Day Parade, I guess, for people, because it gets broadcast around the world, I think, not just in the United States, is that you don't have to go out there when it's 30 degrees. And it's and, and I imagine if you actually were in New York, it'd be like a Times Square experience where you have to get out there like five hours in advance. You can't go to the bathroom and you're just kind of stuck out there freezing, you know, and it's like, what am I doing here? But 
you know, when you can watch it on TV in the comfort of your own home. And then my, uh, you know, my other question is, okay, there's a lot of parades in the world. You know, there's a, you know, the, the, uh, the Rose Bowl parade in in New Year's. I mean, there's parades all over the place. Why is this one? Why do, why do we, why is this the most famous one in this country? Maybe I'm sure there's more famous ones in Asia or Europe, but in this country, this has got to be the one. I mean, at least by measured by TV ratings. Yeah, I mean, I and I think you just hit it. You know, measured on TV ratings, I think a big part of it is they've they've locked us in, and then now it's such a marketing <laughs> darling that you know they make so much money from the TV advertisements. They know that everybody has the day off. And at the very least, they can roll out to the living room in their pajamas and watch the commercials that are in between all the floats. And so it, I think it's a big it's a big money maker, not necessarily a bad thing. I just think that maybe that's the reason it has so much pull these days is because they place a lot of importance on it so that people place a lot of importance on it so that people watch it so that we watch the commercials. But but like Bernice had said in the opening thing, you know, it, its genesis was intrinsically commercial to begin with. You know, Macy's was calling itself the biggest store on the planet, which it may or may not have been. But it really was a Black Friday kickoff. Right. I mean, right from the get go, right from the first one. So it's weird that, you know, sort of this organic holiday, which began as, you know, the union of two or at least that's the myth we were talking about, whether that was true or not. You know, the Europeans and indigenous North Americans come together, have some fun, drink some beer, eat some food, and then let's throw in super marketing thing. <laughs> One of the biggest marketing, um, I'm not going to call it a scam, but it's just, it's a marketing tactic that was brilliant. Like you say, all these millions of people watch every single year. And of course, it's all about the commercials. Right. Right. And I and I think it works, too, because, you know, it's it is a holiday that was originally, you know, started with religious intentions of, you know, giving thanks for what you have. And in general, if you have any sort of holiday or activity that's going to be more religiously focused, then people are more likely to actually observe that holiday. And the fact that it always happened on the fourth Thursday of think of November as opposed to Easter, which you know moves around all the time. Um, I right. I think it was I think it's pretty genius. Also, if you're a department store, you got to get people ready for winter. You know, you want to sell them hats and coats and mittens and yep. things and and convince them that there's a lot of things they need to buy for Christmas. It's a great way to kick off the whole holiday season. <laughs> No, I just, I actually, I mean, I think maybe, maybe a lot of people don't know that Abraham Lincoln was the first president that proclaimed it a federal holiday. So I think, you know, it just, it just moved. Abraham Lincoln was already like in the top echelon of presidents. But for me, man, that just like moves him up even more because I love Thanksgiving. Okay. Since we're talking about the president. So apparently sort of started out as a Massachusetts Bay holiday, I mean, locally celebrated in throughout New England. And then it sort of caught on. And then George Washington was the first to declare it a holiday for one year. And it was sort of like a year to year basis, uh, as opposed to making it a blanket federal holiday that would go on forever. But what 
I found curious was Thomas Jefferson, Mr. You know, we the people or, you know, blah, blah, blah. He hated it. He, he thought it was total bullshit. He said it was the most ridiculous idea ever conceived. And he refused to exercise his own office when he, the two terms he was president, to declare it a holiday. Because he thought it was, it violated the separation of church and state in the First Amendment. Right. Which I I do understand if if your fundamental belief is the separation of church and state, which has been a foundation of our of our country for so long, then if Thanksgiving was originally more of a day of prayer, give thanks to the Lord for, you know, having preparations for the coming winter, I can understand on the basis of your foundational beliefs not making it a federal holiday. So I do respect him for that. But as somebody who now just loves to eat turkey and not have to do anything else on Thanksgiving besides, you know, help my mother-in-law cook amazing food, I'm really also glad that Abraham Lincoln declared it a federal holiday in 1863. In the middle of a civil war. Yeah. It didn't it didn't seem to help, but you know. <laughs> Ellie, I have a little quiz for you, and I didn't tell you the answers in advance, so we're going to see how you do. You you ready for this? Um, probably not, but okay. Uh, it's about I, it's I about Thanksgiving meal items. It's about Thanksgiving meal items. Okay. Uh, okay. So number one of the following five items, which entree dish was not on the menu of the original 1621 Thanksgiving celebration? Okay, was it venison, also known as deer, lobster, eel, swan, turkey, or oysters? Turkey. Ooh, you got it. Not everybody gets that. Did you read that or did you know that already? I already knew that only because um, my husband is an avid hunter and I heard that somewhere in one of his monologues about turkeys. So I, you know, and when I read that, I had to look up why was that? Because turkeys were native to North America, but apparently they were not the fat birds that we breed today. So they were actually extremely fast. They were like roadrunners and very difficult to shoot with a gun or a bow on an average day. But in the middle of the winter, you know, when they had to get through snow, that would slow them down and you could get them. So they were a winter thing, but this, the first Thanksgiving was somewhere in early October, probably not November. So no turkeys. Of the following side dishes, which were not, not served on the 1621 Thanksgiving table, choose three. Peas, squash, mashed potatoes, cabbage, sweet potatoes, Corn, green bean casserole, cranberry sauce, or gravy? All right. My first two, I'm going to say, are green bean casserole was not included. Right. Um, uh, I don't, potatoes were also not included. Yes. I think those, because those, those are not native to North America. And I. No, they weren't introduced into the mainland until decades later from South America. There were no potatoes. And something, uh, dun dun dun. I think peas. No, peas were there. They had okay. peas. 
Okay. What they did not have was gravy because they didn't have flour, the mills to produce flour, which is necessary to make gravy. They also didn't have cranberry sauce because there was no sugar. There were cranberries. They could have been raw, but there would have been no cranberry sauce as we understand it. Right. Okay. Okay. See, I was, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So of the following four dessert dishes, dishes, which were not on the menu of the original 1621 uh, celebration, was it dried raisins, grapes, pumpkin pie, or cornmeal pudding? I would say grapes and pumpkin pie. Pumpkin pie for the reason that you said there was no sugar or flour to make a crust. And I don't think grapes grow in that region. Actually, they did have grapes. Now, they oh, might really? be the same green grapes that we see in our stores, but they, there were grapes that grew. But you're right about the pumpkin pie. Not only did they not have sugar, they didn't even have ovens in which to... Put a pie in. They had open fires. They didn't have ovens, so um, they may have had boiled squash, though, which would have been a very you know like more like a side dish, but not yeah, definitely not pumpkin pie. So okay, all right. So you did pretty good here. Um, So I was just going to ask you. So you you mentioned that you love Thanksgiving, the eating part of Thanksgiving. Did did what did your family serve for Thanksgiving as growing up, and what do you and your husband serve today? Well, we growing up, I think we just typically we had a pretty standard Thanksgiving meal of, you know, turkey and um, stuffing and, you know, green beans and mashed potatoes. It, it was never um, there, there was never any sort of secret family recipe for any of those dishes. But the one thing we actually always did growing up was we would always have pumpkin pie for breakfast. <laughs> which, yeah. Yeah. Which as a kid, that was great. Really? Like day of. On yeah. the day of or the day yeah, after? Yeah, which as a kid, that was great. The day of. Really? Yeah. So you get up, watch the Macy's Day Parade, yeah. and eat pumpkin pie? Yeah. Wow. Okay. And now I, for Thanksgiving dinner, I normally have to, we normally work on the holidays, the specific holidays, but my mother-in-law makes an amazing Thanksgiving dinner, normally sometime around Thanksgiving. And so she makes everything homemade, you know, has the bread crumbs, you know, drying for the stuffing and um, everything is um, just 100%, you know, just homemade with love and I'm sure lots of butter and um, it it tastes phenomenal. So um, it's my husband's favorite holiday. It's definitely in my top three favorite holidays and we, we love it. And um, the other thing I love to do is after Thanksgiving make so you you take leftover stuffing and you you put it in a waffle maker and then you put a slice of leftover turkey on there and then some gravy and you can have it for breakfast. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I'm stealing that. That sounds like a good idea. So when you say you guys uh, do you guys like make like triple time over Thanksgiving? You're both pilots, right? Yes. But we uh, Do you guys it, it depends on on airline. Um, you know, every airline is different. But um, mm. no, uh, I I wish it was travel oh. time. That'd mm. be great. <laughs> 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 just, 
I should throw that out there. It's just, it's just, it's just regular, huh? Even if you have to work on a holiday, it's just a regular. Pay? A lot of airlines will do uh, like a holiday pay, maybe like time and a half, or, or um, you know, some sort of premium pay. Time and a half, boy, a stingy guys, man. <laughs> Good lord. So uh, I guess we should probably uh, uh, wrap this up. So. We did, you know, we we didn't even actually mention that this holiday, Thanksgiving, is celebrating its 400th anniversary, based on the original celebration that we kept referring to between the Wampog people and the and the Pilgrims. So, the you know, it's 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 what's weird about this holiday. I don't know. Maybe you got some thoughts about it. You know, because stuff like Christmas and Easter, like you mentioned, Fourth of July, these things are going to last. You know, as long as forever, you know, because they're, I mean, at least Christmas and Easter are worldwide. But why is this particular holiday, which really is only in the U.S. and in parts of Canada, why is this, how come this has obtained such a, such a amazing position in the American soul and the mind? Like you said, it's your favorite holiday. Most people will say it's their favorite holiday. They like it more than Christmas. They like it more than, you know, my favorite holiday is Halloween, but this is a close second. But I mean, why do you, why do you think, why, why do you think this thing is latched in so hard? In line with many jokes about American culture, I think a lot of people love having a validated excuse to sit in their house, not go anywhere and eat great food. Whatever <laughs> whatever your dietary preference is, if you love turkey, if you love tofurkey, if you love ordering pizza, it's a great time to just take a day off. And there is not normally a lot of stress around the holiday. And if, if you're cooking the meal and, you know, you have stressful in-laws coming over or something, I'm sure it's uh, very busy. But I think, you know, it's it's not the stress of, like, gift-giving over Christmas and you don't really have to right. decorate for it. Um, right. I I think, too. And for, spend for, all that money. Yeah. Spend all yeah. that money, man. Yeah. I, you know, I think for a lot of people it is a great excuse to take a long weekend, you know. Nobody really likes to work that Friday after Thanksgiving or or do anything. And then you have these two magical days, Saturday and Sunday, before you have to go back to work. And I think the other reason too is um, it's a great way to kick off the Christmas season, which is huge for, you know, the economy. And I think it, uh, the holidays in general, when you kind of extend the holiday season beyond Christmas and sort of bump it back up to Thanksgiving, and even sometimes bump it back up to your favorite holiday of Halloween, it really helps the dark, cold months of the winter go by a lot faster psychologically. Right. Because, right. you know, the, the winter solstice is, you know, right before Christmas. And so the days are just getting right. darker and colder. And in most places, yeah. it hasn't actually snowed yet, or you don't have good enough snow to do the things that you really love to do. And so it's it's an excellent distraction from that, I think it just kind of helps motivate people and and bring them together. And I don't think it's going anywhere. I don't think Thanksgiving is going anywhere. I think it's like one in 10 Americans will travel just by airplane for Thanksgiving and even more of them travel by car for Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. it's, it's become a big deal, a great way to see people and a great way to see family. Right. I think that's why it'll stick around. Mm -hmm. Do you feel, you know, I... <sighs> I hope we've we've done a loving sort of retrospect of some aspects of it, but 
you know, I know I'm going to get a couple emails at least that saying, hey, man, you're throwing Thanksgiving under the bus. Uh, I don't want to hear about the Indians or commercialization or blah, blah, blah. You know, do you feel like it's an authentic expression of American history yourself? Um, no, but <laughs> I, here's, here's the thing. I don't think. But you did say to. you wanted it to continue, right? I do. I do. That. But, I, okay. you know, I don't think it has to. Okay. I, you know, we don't, we, we've definitely removed a lot of the historical aspects of, of many holidays, right? I mean, you know, Christmas is m- a much more global holiday centered around gift giving, um, All right. you know, than it and, and vacation than it is around, you know, celebrating the birth of Christ. And, you know, it's yeah. um, yep. even, even the 4th of July is a lot of times, you know, just in here in the U.S. more about taking your boat out on the lake or mm-hmm. having a big cookout rather than just celebrating the actual founding of the country. So I think, I don't think it has to completely respect the, the history of, of Thanksgiving. I mean, I think in some ways we just have to acknowledge the fact that in a really, really fast paced life that we live in, in the United States, in the 21st century, sometimes it's just really great to take a day off. And if the excuse to do that is eating turkey to celebrate an alliance between the Native Americans and the pilgrims that actually didn't turn out super well in the end, then maybe that's just what what we need today in today's world. Mm hmm. I'm, I'm well, not sure if I should be more apologetic about it, but no, you shouldn't. I no, I, I I respect your candor. That's that is definitely the way to go. So, Ellie, I want to thank you for your first outing with us, and I hope you'll stick with us unless Bernice talks you out of it. Well, it's time for our holiday after dinner nap, everyone. I want to thank again our new co-host Ellie and our amazing AI engine Bernice. I was promised pumpkin pie. I believe. It's on the way, Bernice. We hope you'll follow or subscribe to Scandal Sheet on your favorite pod platform. And we'd love it if you'd leave us a shameless, over-the-top rave review on Apple Podcasts especially. That helps us build audience. Also, we want to hear from you! So, you can reach us online at ScandalSheetPod.com, on Facebook, or on Twitter. Or just send us an email to contact at ScandalSheetPod.com. We hope all our listeners enjoy their Thanksgiving holiday. And we'll see you next time on Scandal Sheet. Copyright 2021. Thad Helsley Media. All rights reserved.